Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Who is it? Lady, it's us. We're in your house. Oh, no. I don't have much, but just take it and don't hurt me. She thinks we're like, you know, forget about it. Like we're freaking criminal whatevers. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No. Uh, Then what are you? We don't want to hurt nobody. We just want you to watch Grease live, and then we'll leave, and then nobody gets hurt. It comes on in ten minutes. Maybe you want to get some snacks out? I don't want to watch Grease live. You can't make me. Another one. Why are they like this? What is it with people? They're just, just, just... can't reason. Bafungul. Watch your language, Stunard. Sorry, lady. Why is it so important to you that I watch Grease live? Because it's like, you know... It's live. It's historic. Forget about it. Who doesn't like it? Danny Zuko, Frenchie, Putsy, Duty. Summer nights. Freddie, my love. Cake by the ocean. One more day. Uh, I think the last one is in Les Mis. Look, I'm not watching Grease live. I'll close my eyes. I'll go la-la-la-la-la so I can't hear it. I think it's disgusting that you two would use threats of violence to make me watch something that's just going to annoy me. We just, it just, it brings us such joy. We're only trying to share. Wait, wait, wait. How about if we agree to watch something that you like? What do you like? I like Orphan Black. Orphan Black. Is that the one with the clones? Please, please, lady, don't make us watch no clones. We can do this the easy way or the hard way. I've got all 78 episodes on DVR. We could leave. We could absolutely leave. Forget about it. This never happened. Grease? Who, me? I don't even know what Grease is. Grease is the time, is the place, is the motion. Grease is the way we are feeling. Shut up. That wasn't even in the original play. Lady, we're backing out, all right? We're keeping our hands in sight. Meanwhile, maybe you could listen to this nice radio show. Nobody gets hurt. And now Jeb Bush still hasn't brought back his chauffeur outfit. Colin McEnroe. Yes, and all that has to do with the last night's Emmy Awards, which we will be talking about in the second segment today. But indeed, Grease Live did win an Emmy, and the world is still turning. And Jeb Bush was like the funniest thing in the cold open, too, which is maybe the world isn't still turning. Maybe the world has just completely come to a standstill. However, that's not our first subject here. And I also want to say at the end of the show today, as we sometimes do on Mondays, I am saving the final segment for you and your phone calls. I know this campaign is weighing heavily on your minds. You have things you want to say. Uh, and questions you want to raise about how it's being covered. So that's what we'll do in the final segment today. But we're very excited here in the first segment to have uh, on with us Margaret Sullivan. She is the media columnist for The Washington Post now. Uh, Prior to that, she was the uh, public editor uh, of The New York Times. And she has been writing about a particular aspect uh, of this campaign, which kind of showed itself in its fullest form, I think it's fair to say, uh, on Friday morning. Uh, This was when Donald Trump called a press conference. I guess it was supposed to be a press conference. It was, anyway, at least a media event to talk about a certain topic. And first of all, Margaret Sullivan, welcome to our show. Thank you very much, Colin. Great to be here. So on this Friday morning, uh, Donald Trump had explained that he would be talking uh, and perhaps putting to rest his exact position on the nature uh, of the birther movement, uh, you know, the Barack Obama birther movement, uh, the whole question about whether Barack Obama was born on U.S. soil. He was going to say something very definitive uh, about this and, and explain what happened instead. Well, he he, Donald Trump said that he was going to have um, some sort of big announcement, 
and the press, you know, dutifully assembled at the uh, Trump International Hotel. And uh, he, he kept them waiting for quite a while while, um, you know, he brought forth various people uh, who were, you know, speaking in favor of his campaign. And the cameras kept rolling. Um, all three of the cable networks were there in force. And they, uh, you know, they broadcast every. Thing that was going on, which had nothing to do with this announcement. Eventually, after quite a while, um, certainly half an hour and probably longer, um, Trump did come out and make his very brief statement of the obvious, which is that uh, Obama was born in the United States, which, you know, anybody who's been paying attention has known that. So there really was no particular substantive news in it other than he was now saying that he believed it. And, you know, I felt like the press really, the, the, the TV news media particularly, really got played here because they kept broadcasting whatever it was he was putting in front of them. So let's peel this back a little bit and look at it. So one, one reason that that happens is that for, for most of this campaign, both the general election campaign and the primary campaign, if you are somebody in one of the executive suites of one of the news networks or one of the the three major networks, Trump live equals gold, right? You kind of uh, get that in your head, that when he's live, it means he's unscripted, anything might happen. People like to watch him live so that, you know, in terms of ratings, in terms of numbers, and they've they've made no attempt to conceal this. Jeff Zucker uh, and Les Moonves and other TV executives have said, this guy is just, you know, he's been really good for us, no matter what we think of him as a candidate for the bottom line. I think that was Moonves' line. He's really, really good. So it's not too surprising, is it, that that they would at least initially fall for this and and go live. I mean, it, it usually works out really well for them. Right. But there we do, I hope, have some element of uh, responsibility. The cable network should have some element of responsibility to journalism as well. This is not just a, a business. This is not just about ratings, but it's also about a very important election. And when you give somebody that kind of unearned airtime, you are doing him an incredible political favor. And I think that they need to come to terms with whether they want to do that. There was no news value in it at all. Yes. We should say that folded into this somehow also was this tour of this new uh, Trump hotel facility, uh, which is another aspect of this campaign that's almost without precedent. You know, it's almost as if, you know, Bob Dole had some green green vitamin shake he was selling or something at his campaign stops. I mean, Trump's unusual that he not only tries to, you know, to, to gin up support uh, and coverage through these things, but he tries to monetize them, which is really weird. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, the the press conference or whatever it is, I don't think it can, as you say, it couldn't really be described as a press conference, was really an infomercial for the campaign and a straight commercial for the hotel. So, you know, and and to their credit, the CNN, some of the CNN journalists afterwards, John King comes to mind particularly, but several of them, you know, forthrightly said, we got played. And didn't appreciate it. Now, whether that translates into any sort of reform in the next 
you know, 50 days, if that's what we have left, it remains to be seen. Well, you, you kind of think that it might, because look, you know, for all of the cynicism that I evinced in this conversation, and all the idealism that you evinced in this conversation, there's some practical realities about covering a campaign. And this is the way that they work. You know, the schedule goes out. Everybody gets it. It says, you go here. There'll be five monkeys playing cymbals, you know, and so everybody shows up and there better be five monkeys playing cymbals because that's what everybody's planned their day around. And everybody's got news budgets in where they're working. And, and of course, especially for the news networks, they're going to go live with this. So if there aren't monkeys for 30 minutes, boy, they've got to fill that time up somehow or or just roll on whatever is happening. In this case, it was a bunch of people wearing medals saying that's great right. things about, about Donald Trump. So, I mean, it is a fundamental fracturing not of some idealistic compact, but of the practical realities of campaign coverage. That's right. And, you know, I think that it's clear that that Trump was very happy with the way he managed to trick everyone. There was a, a headline in the Washington Post um, in the Fix blog that said it was actually a very critical piece. But the headline said something like this event was Trump's greatest trick to date. And Trump retweeted that, you know, clearly self in a self-congratulatory way. Hey, I, I pulled this over on them again. And the interesting thing here, too, Colin, is that he claims to really dislike the press and to say that reporters are dishonest and they're terrible people and they're the scum of the earth. And meanwhile, they've been giving him all this free um, – all this free airtime and free press that has really made his campaign in many ways. So there's a pretty big paradox there. So as somebody in your position tends to do, um, I'll invite you to consider the other question, which is for every 30 minutes of uh, of airtime, essentially hijacked in this case by Donald Trump, getting TV to go live when he's doing something other than what he says he's going to be doing, that's 30 minutes they're not doing something else. They're either not, they're not covering Syria, they're not covering the Hillary Clinton campaign, they're not, I don't know, they're not covering Gary Johnson's campaign either, right? It isn't just that they're wasting their time on Donald Trump. That's right. There's a finite amount of time, and this was, you know, a time when many people are are watching. And, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. When you do that, you're taking away from something else. And, you know, it is interesting to see, okay, well, so what was Hillary Clinton doing at this at this same time generally on Friday um, in the late morning? And, you know, she was speaking to a black women's group about the economic challenges faced by women of color. And it got very little coverage. And, you know, truly, it probably didn't have great news value um, in the traditional sense, but neither did what was happening at the Trump International Hotel. No, this is a classic. Uh, the, the framing that I think uh, Slate used recently was Bart Simpson versus Lisa Simpson. So um, Hillary Clinton was doing the Lisa Simpson thing, right? She was showing it up at some worthy, purposeful event that had some substance to it that, you know, there could be some interesting takeaways from. And, and Bart Simpson, uh, a.k.a. Donald Trump, was basically just playing a trip trick on the press and, and amusing himself at the press's expense. I, That's I want, right. I want to also just go over here. So the, one of the reasons that there were all these, and as you talk about in your column, you know, it's not even just those 30 minutes leading up to those 30 minutes. There are all these so-called crawls on the on the <laughs> on the right. cable net news coming up very soon. Major, <laughs> major Trump announcement coming up. So it's like he's getting all these all these ribbons of crawl. And and I mean, 
The whole subtext of this is that he is going to nail shut a coffin that has a vampire inside it. And that vampire is this whole crazy birther thing. And, yeah. and so he, you know, he devotes 30 minutes or so to something, to other stuff, and then five words to this. But then he also sort of, he, he kind of sticks a little half-life onto this story because the other thing he does that day is to say, um, Hillary Clinton's 2008 campaign started this. I'm finishing it. So his role, as it turns out, is to be, put this loathsome rumor to rest. You know, it really, it, it really, from a strictly, um, you know, can you trick people point of view, it it really was, you know, masterful. Hmm. But I don't say that in admiration, because I think that presidential candidates should be above such things. But he absolutely did introduce. Um, a falsehood in into this whole thing, which was that somehow uh, Hillary Clinton started this whole thing and he was ending it. And that, it, it's just not the case. One of the uh, many services the Washington Post has provided for us in this instance is a little bit of a montage uh, of Donald Trump talking about this very issue over the years, going back five, six years. Uh, here's a little bit of what he said. Do you think your birther position has hurt you among African-Americans? I don't know. I have no idea. I don't even talk about it anymore. I've had very smart people say, Donald, stay on the China issue, stay on the Saudi Arabia issue, stay on the India taking our jobs and the Mexico, which is NAFTA, which Get off cleaned the birth out certificate New England. Issue. Get off the birth certificate issue. Why don't you? Why doesn't he show his birth certificate? And you know what? I wish he would. You are not allowed to be a president if you're not born in this country. He may not have been born in this country. Yes, in fact, I was born in Hawaii. August 4th, 1961, in Kapiolani Hospital. We've posted the certification that is given by the state of Hawaii on the Internet for everybody to see. I don't make up anything. Let, let, let me just clarify. The whole birther thing, where do you stand on that now? I don't talk about it anymore because every time I talk about it, it becomes a story, so I don't want to waste my time talking about it anymore. But she's uh, going to raise this issue against you. I don't care. Doesn't, I'm going to raise it against her. Hillary Clinton and her campaign of 2008 started the birther controversy. I finished it. President Barack Obama was born in the United States, period. You know, Margaret Sullivan, one of the things that I've sort of struggled about is struggled with is Trump's ability to kind of destroy not only frameworks of empirical truth, but frameworks of space and time. You know, it's kind of like, you know, I mean, with the Iraq thing that we went through a, a few weeks ago, he cited a 2004 interview as proof that he opposed the run up uh, an invasion of Iraq 2004, long after this was a settled matter, you know, it, it, and, and this is kind of similar too. he somehow or other managed to reframe that issue. You, we just heard him talking about this over the years uh, as kind of one of his real signature issues in, in American public life. And then somehow or other, n no, not at all. And, and uh, you know, I mean, Glenn Kessler from The Washington Post and lots of other people, factcheck.org and PolitiFact, you know, they fact check this guy to death and it doesn't really seem to matter. That's right. I mean, it is. It, it does give some credence to the idea that if you say something enough times, people will believe it. Um, and he manages to say it in a slightly different way, or you know, kind of interesting way, or uh, a, a way that's oddly captivating. And the facts don't seem to enter into it, you know, for a lot of people. Um, and it, it it also sort of relates to the idea of. 
you know, all pub all publicity is bad is is good publicity as long as they spell your name right. I mean, that's the kind of mentality that I think is behind a lot of what Donald Trump has managed to do with his manipulation of the media. It's been um, a revelation to watch it happen. And, and it kind of makes one of the things that I wonder about, and there's no way to answer this this question for another four years at minimum, is whether it will change the style of campaigning in this country. I mean, he man, he has really slipped out an awful lot out from under the umbrella of empiricism and fact-checking. And these things just seem to matter less and less. And you just wonder whether they this will fuel future candidacies. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, there's a it could because there is a echo chamber now on the right, the so-called alt-right, that uh, is set up to magnify these kinds of things. And, that you know, that didn't exist before, and it does exist now. However, I think that Donald Trump is especially um, – I, I don't know if I want to say good at this, but he's especially skilled – at this, the kind of thing you're describing, Colin. I don't know that uh, many other candidates or maybe even any other candidates could get away with it. Yeah, well, hopefully. I think you can say he's good at it. Give the devil his due, as the expression goes. He is good at it. Um, so the last thing I wanted to get in with you, and it's something that you have written about. I mean, I've been following the same Gallup tracking polls about the press that you follow. And, and you know, I mean, approval of the press over the last decade or so, ah, it's never much higher than 40, you know, and it's been going down. Um, but it's really plummeted lately. There, you know, it really is. We're now in the 20s, uh, the, 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 both in the Gallup tracking bull and I think other assessments of, of favorable reactions or unfavorable reactions to the press. You have to assume that these are yoked phenomena. The fact that somehow or other people feel as though we haven't delivered a satisfactory account of this incredibly critical time in American history. Th this has something to do <laughs> with the fact that we're down in the 20s now. Right. I mean, it's really very troubling. It is interesting to see that the the numbers are much lower among Republicans than they are among Democrats. And Trump, meanwhile, is taking credit for driving those numbers down. And he has, you know, said how much he dislikes the press. And he has a large following who, you know, believe what he says about almost everything. So, you know, I do agree that it's yoked, that these things have something to do with each other. It's troubling. And I don't really know what to do about it, except that we have to do our jobs. We have to be as accurate as possible and as assertive as possible and pressing for the truth. And, you know, I do think that people, you know, in these surveys, perhaps, don't draw the distinction between different kinds of media. Are they talking about the New York Times, the Washington Post, or are they talking about the National Enquirer and Breitbart? You know, there is a difference. And there is, I think, more trust in some media outlets that are more reputable than others. And I hang on to that with a little bit of optimism. I think when this is all over, though, we have to have a longer conversation and maybe a lot of conversations and maybe even sort of face-to-face -face public forums with people about who we are, what it is we do, how we understand our mission, uh, and, and what we think is coming out on the other side, of the other side of the pipeline. Because one thing that I am getting from people, particularly when I converse with them on, public, on, uh, on social media, is 
you know, this kind of almost helpless agnosticism where people say, well, all politicians lie and the media is slanted and biased. There isn't, you know, all, all media sources have some kind of tilt. I mean, that's a very typical refrain, some version of that uh, on social right. media. And that sort of doesn't leave us with much of a way to even have a conversation. In other words, if there's no source of verification that you trust and you're assuming that by default the person talking uh, is lying, how do we even begin to to have any kind of rational conversation about either the issue or the choice behind it? Right. I mean, I think we're very split on this, and not everyone feels that way. The people who do feel that way feel very strongly about it, but there are many others who I know, do value good journalism and deep reporting and the kind of reporting that the Washington Post has been doing um, on some of Trump's financial dealings and his charitable giving or lack thereof. I mean, I hear a lot from people, uh, a lot of appreciation on that. So I don't think it can be seen as, you know, all one hue across the board. Absolutely true. We had Mr. Farenthold on our show last week talking about that. Absolutely. uh, Thank you so much, Margaret Sullivan, a media columnist for The Washington Post. Thanks for being with us today. You're welcome, Colin. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Okay. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about, I assume this is a more cheerful topic, the Emmys. Who doesn't get all just all cheered up about the Emmys? We're going to talk about the Emmys now. They were last night. Um, We're going to talk to Allison Herman, uh, a writer for The Ringer, a fairly new publication that I really like a lot. And it covers, appropriately for my night last night, it covers both sports and culture and politics. Um, Last night, uh, the Packers, who were very important to me, were playing the Vikings. uh, And the Red Sox, who were very important to me, were playing the Yankees. And so I kind of had the TV set up so I could toggle among three things, the Emmys, the Red Sox game and the Packers game. As a result, I got a very incomplete picture about what was going on uh, in the Emmys and probably everywhere else as well. Uh, However, I've caught up as much as I can, uh, and Allison Herman has been covering this stuff very closely, both before and after, joins us uh, now to talk about last night's awards. Welcome to the conversation, Allison. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, yeah, the first thing, my my first reaction, I did catch the cold open uh, and... um, Right away, I mean, you like it, I think, if you're surprised because, in fact, you know, Emmys and all kinds of awards ceremonies, they have a kind of kabuki formality in terms of what's going to happen. You know a lot of the things that are going to happen. So anytime you could put Jeb Bush into a comedy sketch and have him be the funniest thing in the sketch, right away you're suggesting that maybe you're going to be able to knock us off our feet a little bit. Um, did, did you find last night's show as a TV show to be satisfying? Absolutely. I mean, I think hosting an award show is kind of a thankless job. You have to balance so many things and you have to be entertaining, but also segue into other people's spotlight. So I think Kimmel did a pretty fantastic job, especially considering that he was following Andy Samberg, who I thought did a really amazing job last year and was kind of critically beloved, even if the telecast wasn't as watched as the Academy would like it to be. So I thought it was funny and surprising, and I think Jeb Bush in particular is kind of enjoying a I told you so victory lap right now, so it was nice to see him enjoy that a little bit. And I also enjoyed that Kimmel was pretty uh, aggressive in going after Mark Burnett. I thought it formed a really nice <laughs> contrast with uh, Jimmy Fallon, who's obviously taken some slack this week for not going particularly aggressive 
Right. For people who don't know, Mark Burnett, of course, the creator of The Apprentice TV series, he was in the audience last night and having himself a jolly good laugh uh, over all the uh, ribbing that that, uh, Jimmy Kimmel was giving him. I've got some structural questions and some formalistic questions. Maybe I'll start with um, something that you've written about, which is the, the way in which the Emmys inevitably has to struggle to catch up with the the fact that TV isn't really TV anymore. I mean, TV stopped being just broadcast TV a really long time ago with the advent of cable. But now with digitally-based platforms, I mean, most notably Netflix and Amazon as a way of getting TV into our house, but but even more things than that. I mean, things that, that seem to spring up every day. The, the struggle to figure out even in an illusory way, what the best thing or the best performance or the best person on television is, has gotten pretty complicated. How did how did the Emmys deal with that last night? Absolutely. So I think the real turning point in the Emmys history in dealing with peak TV actually came last year when the Academy imposed some pretty sweeping structural changes in how voter, how winners are determined and even how shows and performances are categorized. So the biggest difference is that it used to be that out of the final field of five nominations, the winners were actually selected by a much smaller group of Academy voters called Blue Ribbon Panels, who were disproportionately the people who had time to actually sit in a room and watch every nominated performance and episode, which meant they were disproportionately older and therefore more conservative in their choices. So that's the kind of thing that a lot of people would attribute, say, Modern Family's five-year winning streak to. And last year, what the Academy did was open up the votership to or open up the votership for the winners to the entire membership, which is massive. It's about 20,000 compared to the Golden Globes, which are the other comparable, uh, very public TV awards show. I think their votership is less than 100 at this point. So that allows for shows that were extremely popular but underrecognized by award shows like Game of Thrones to start getting recognized. And you saw that obviously be reaffirmed last night. And you also saw um, they really cracked down on sort of loophole gaming in the form of comedy versus drama. I actually think it was a very smart move for the Emmys to basically say, like, look, there's not really a meaningful difference between comedy and drama anymore. So we're just going to draw the line at runtime and half hour shows, including Transparent, which isn't necessarily a laugh out loud comedy, are going to be categorized as comedies and hour long shows, including Orange is the New Black, are going to be categorized as dramas. I so like, I think what you, was it was it Amazon's uh, was excuse me, was it um, Transparent's creator who said last night, uh, well, it was born a comedy, but it identifies as a drama. Yeah, that was a joke that Kimmel made after after Soloway, I believe, gave her accept, acceptance speech. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I think that's actually worked out in Transparent's favor in terms of Jeffrey Tambor repeating his win. Um, and I think it's, it's tough for the competition when you're going against that show with that kind of emotional stakes and depth of performance. But basically, it's reflective of how the Emmys are acknowledging that it's no longer as easy to divide television and classify it the way it once did. And I think uh, that's kind of been the biggest gesture that the Academy has made in its attempt to keep up with peak TV. And there have been other things, too. Like, for example, the uh, field has been expanded from there used to be a hard cap at five finalists. Now they're up to seven in some categories which I think acknowledges the fact that there's simply more good TV for the academies to for the academy to potentially honor. So I think they've actually done a, a pretty decent job and last night was very reflective of that. 
I think there were some other awards that kind of suggested that, yes, they're, they're instead of taking the thing that's in front of them, the Big Bang Theory that's getting, you know, this gigantic ratings and is very top of mind with a huge mainstream audience, they don't mind taking a flashlight and poking around in the corners a little bit. You see that with um, the twin winnings of Maslani and Malik uh, from Orphan Black and, and Mr. Robot, respectively. I mean, not that these aren't popular shows, but they're not wildly popular shows. And they're, they both have kind of they're both part of the nerd ascendance too. You know, they, uh, they they speak very much to that aesthetic. And I don't know how you read it, but I I thought that was sort of the voters saying, yeah, you know, these aren't maybe the most famous shows in the world, and they're a little bit on the nerd sci-fi end of things, or maybe even a lot. Uh, but that's fine. These are the two best performances we saw. Absolutely. I mean, I think the the very first award of the night actually sent that award pretty or sent that message like pretty clearly. Um, so when, the supporting actor for a comedy award went to Louis Anderson, who's giving a very strange but fascinating performance as the mother of the title character on Zach Galifianakis's Baskets, which is not a highly rated or even universally critically acclaimed show. But it's intriguing. And the fact that the Emmys went for that, not just over, you know, your Ty Burrells, your widely watched performances, but also your Tony Hales, your Titus Burgesses, that sends a really interesting message about what the Emmys are willing to entertain now. And I think it also kind of assuaged my personal concern about opening up the votership for the final winners to the entire Academy which is I was afraid something like Game of Thrones that's objectively, you know, more widely watched than something like Baskets would be over-rewarded. Um, and I think it's really interesting that the Academy so far isn't really succumbing to that kind of systemic bias and is instead looking, you know, between the cracks and into shows that might actually really benefit from being acknowledged on such a wide platform. You know, the other thing that's weird about the Emmys is, particularly in this time of peak TV, uh, peak TV referring to the notion that there's actually more good television than you can easily watch, even if you're mildly committed to it, uh, is that for that reason, it's it's easy to have an opinion in every category, but it's almost impossible to have seen everything. I mean, for people whose job it is not, anyway, uh, it's difficult. So I find myself just going through the categories and having strong opinions that weren't really the product, like with the Oscar. I'll just see all the movies, you know? You can see basically all the relevant Oscar movies. At this point, though, I can't even believe that the Emmy voters have seen all this stuff. Yeah, and it's really interesting. That that used to be the actual purpose of the Blue Ribbon panels, is basically being like, we're going to ensure that you've actually watched all, you know, dozen hours of TV that you're entitled to watch. But on the other hand, what peak TV means is that there's a lot of room for discovery and a lot of room for sort of weirder, more interesting shows to flourish or even just get on the air in, when they previously wouldn't have. So Louis Anderson is obviously hugely indicative of that. But if you go through the nomination, something like Unreal, which is a scripted series on Lifetime, got uh, a writing nomination and a supporting actress nomination for one of its uh, leads. And... I think it's really interesting that uh, the Emmys kind of reflected both sides of peak TV, which is both, you know, it means that something like People v. OJ can absolutely demolish in its category because it just really managed to stand out. And that was the one thing that everyone saw. 
But it also meant that, you know, smaller things kind of had the chance to break through the noise because there was so much competition that it kind of flattened the field competitively. Yeah, I was kind of astonished. I mean, I watched the OJ series. I watch a lot of television. I watched the OJ series. It didn't strike me as this crowning television achievement. I mean, it, you know, like The Wire or something. I mean, it, it, they, they got it, you know, they got it. And there were some interesting performances and, and they mostly nailed down a lot of the interesting aspects of the plot. There are ways in which the plot, of course, diverges from historical reality. I wound up liking the, the ESPN documentary, not that it's a fair comparison, a lot more or thinking that it had a lot more to say to me. And, and I guess I'm, I'm your typical grumpy Emmy watcher. To me, the best things I saw last season were The Night Manager, which I thought was a little under-rewarded, and American Crime, where Regina King wins Best Supporting Actress every year. But they mostly kind of ignore this amazing thing that is happening. I mean, American Crime is in some ways a little bit comparable to uh, the O.J. Simpson uh, uh, series. And I don't know. I'm, I'm always uh, I guess everybody has their little darling. No, that's the whole point, right? For sure. I also think what people v. OJ's sweeps kind of reflect is the new kind of gamesmanship in the limited series category, mm-hmm. where I think of people v. OJ, even though it's the first installment of what will be a recurring series, American Crime Story, mm-hmm. um, they decided to submit in the... If people v. OJ had gone into the drama category and had to compete against the likes of Game of Thrones and Mr. Robot and Homeland, it might not have dominated to the same extent that it did, but then you're giving, getting what used to be a pretty marginalized category or one that was considered an afterthought that's filled to the brim with these critical hits. So Fargo, American Crime, as you mentioned, People v. OJ, but it's still a little less of a competition than the main drama category. So you get the opportunity for these shows to just totally sweep. And, you know, it's a little less competitive in the sense that it allows for it to kind of have a clear winner in the way that most peak TV just doesn't. You know, there are still performances and productions that are so recherche that they really probably can't compete. I was fascinated to see that among the nominees was, I think, maybe the best performance I saw on a thing that you could kind of call television last year. And, and that was Laurie Metcalf in, in Horace and Pete. Now, mm-hmm. like if I, to- if I told the audience right now how to get Horace and Pete, it would take a minimum 10 or 15 minutes, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> just to figure the whole thing out. Um, I mean, and, and so you wonder about something like that. I mean, obviously, Louis C.K. with this series has done something completely remarkable and interesting. That one that one particular episode that was just basically the two of them talking back and forth about their broken marriage was just unlike anything I can compare it to and really remarkable. But I mean, maybe that's an example of something where, you know, you can get nominated, but you can't win when you're that hard to find. Yeah, and I definitely think, you know, it is an impossible task in the sense that I think the Emmys are totally putting forward an earnest and good faith effort to keep up with everything that's on TV. But there are certain things that, I mean, The Leftovers, which to my mind was one of the two or three best series, you know, got totally shut out of nominations, even though it hugely improved in second season. One of my favorite shows on television, period, is BoJack Horseman, which given the Emmys bylaws, has to compete as an animated series, and it didn't even make the final crowd of nominations for the Creative Arts Emmys, which were given out last week. And I think that just reiterates the extent to which not the Emmys are necessarily failing, but that they're kind of given this impossible task. And, you know, you can't, they do a decent job, but you can't rely on the Emmys to honor everything that's good about TV. There's so much that's out there, and there's so much that you can discover. And 
no one awards-giving body or even one person is going to be able to refer you to all of it. Well, to that end, Allison Herman, uh, last area I want to get in uh, to with you, and that is the, the Ringer, where you're uh, writing is that you're doing kind of like, kind of a special project this week, which is TV that isn't really status TV, but it's real that is really good TV. So TV that maybe not everybody around the you know dinner table or at the dinner party is swapping little observations about, but it's kind of right in front of your nose and, and it's good. So for people who maybe could actually imagine finding another hour or two a week to watch a little more TV, uh, what have you got for them? Oh, my goodness, there's so much. So I think this week um, is actually when a bunch of new series are premiering on the broadcast networks. So obviously that release schedule is a little outdated in the age of streaming, but there are still just a slew of new shows this week. So one that I would really recommend that comes out tonight is called The Good Place. It is an NBC comedy by Mike Shore, who's the same guy who brought us Parks and Recreation and Brooklyn Nine-Nine on Fox, which is another wonderful show. And it is about a heaven-like place that a person who does not necessarily belong there ends up in. Uh, Ted Danson, who's obviously a TV actor for the ages, co-stars with Kristen Bell. I thought it was really wonderful. Um, Also later this week is Pitch, which is an hour-long baseball drama in keeping with the mission of our website on Fox. Um, I mean, I could go on and on, but those are two real standouts of the new network shows that I would totally recommend people check out. All right. That's great. Hey, listen, Allison Herman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So we're going to take a break now. When we come back, I'm going to give you the number right now so that you can get online. I have no idea what it is that you want to talk about. I mean, I assume it has to do with the presidential campaign. You may have some very specific things you want to say. I'll set up some topics as we go along, but you may have some very specific ideas about how we've gotten to the point that we're at right now. And the point that we're at right now, whereas this is this campaign in terms of the polls is getting very close to a coin toss, uh, which I think is not something people expected even two weeks ago or two and a half weeks ago. So the number, if you'd like to talk about anything, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. The phone lines are open, as they say. We don't really do anything to open the phone lines. They're always actually theoretically open. Emmy Award for Best Production of a Scramble was presented earlier today at a Holiday Inn. Well, technically on the sidewalk outside the Holiday Inn. The winners were Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. We also appeared in the intro but didn't win an Emmy, but Greg Hill won a People's Choice Award. The part of Bill Curry was played by Tom Bergeron. Never miss an episode. We store them all at wnpr.org slash Colin or subscribe to our podcast. On tomorrow's show, the patient who lost his memory and made medical history. And now... Back to Colin. Yeah, that, of course, is the story of of so-called H.M., who was uh, very specifically a Connecticut story. And it's a story that kind of never seems to wrap up. I mean, there's all this new stuff that come out about this kind of incredible tale. Anyway, there's a new book out about H.M. We'll be talking about that uh, on our show tomorrow. Right now, uh, I have no guests. Uh, The number is 860-275-7266. You get to be the guests. 
860-275-7266. I'm going to um, set up a, an idea or two, but really, uh, if there's anything about uh, the current campaign that you you want to talk about, um, or if you just want to get mad, uh, 860-275-7266. I, I do want to mention, um, first of all, a couple of, event, of events coming up. Maybe the most important one uh, right now to me is on October 5th at Watkinson School. We're going to have a conversation, not unlike the one maybe we're about to have right now, but a little bit more formal, a little bit more structured. Um, it's called Honey, I Broke the Democracy. Uh, we're going to talk very specifically about how, in fact, what kinds of institutions have gotten deformed uh, over the course of this campaign and what it's going to take to get them back into shape. We're going to talk a lot uh, about the role of the press in this campaign, which I'm thinking maybe we'll talk about uh, in the next 10 or uh, 14 minutes here on the show, too. I mean, one of the explanations for how did we get here? How have we reached a point where Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are effectively tied or very close to being tied uh, as we head down the last 50 days uh, of this presidential campaign season? And one of the answers people often, maybe the most often uh, most frequent answer bodied forth by people is, it's you guys, it's the press. You just covered this the wrong way. You put way too much emphasis on too many of the wrong things and some of the ways that Margaret Sullivan and I were just talking about that, you know, it, it, maybe it's you. So anyway, if that's something you want to talk about now, fine. If not, join us at Watkinson School uh, on uh, October 5th. Uh, it's called Freshly Squeezed. You can go to the Watkinson.org website uh, and see more about the event and how to subscribe to the whole series or just to go to this one. It's very cheap to go. It supports local nonprofits. When you do pay your very inexpensive ticket, you're also invited to a lovely uh, atmospheric beforehand dinner with me and the panelists, or you can just hang out at your own table. Everybody loves this dinner. Everybody has a good time. So uh, that's out there. Uh, you know, Put it on your calendar, October 5th. And then don't dawdle. You really need to get in there and make sure you reserve your spot there. Uh, so that's October 5th, the freshly squeezed panel on uh, Honey, I Broke the Democracy. Uh, also, as long as I'm uh, ruthlessly promoting things <laughs> tonight, I'll be, I, feel, I really do feel like this horrible huckster now. Um, tonight, I'll be down in Woodbridge at the Great Art New Haven Jewish Community Center. I'll be with Mark Oppenheimer and a bunch of other people, including Nancy Wyman, for a taping of Unorthodox. But it's a live audience taping uh, of um of Unorthodox. That, that's a, a terrific podcast about Jewish affairs, Jewish life. We're going to be concentrating on politics in this particular episode of the podcast. Uh, Oppie's got uh, great people, uh, regular members of his panel. Uh, and uh, so that'll be fun. That starts at seven. I'm doing it from memory here. And then on Thursday night, and this, you know, is going to get crazy. It's going to get wild. All right. And you know, well, you just, you know, there's going to be a huge aftermath because whenever the Darien League of Women Voters gets together to party, it gets very nuts very quickly. But I will be speaking to the Darien League of Women Voters. Um, and uh, I think there's a dinner and stuff like that. I'm sure you can, you'll have to find them on the internet. I don't know how to steer you to that one, but um, but I'm sure Darien League of Women Voters, how hard is that going to be for you to find? All right. I think I'm all done promoting stupid things. That I'm doing, but please come to all of them. I, you could come to all three. I, I don't think that would count as stalking. Uh, our number eight six zero two seven five seven two six six eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. Let's uh, take a look at uh, the board here. We got people calling in, and here's Craig from Woodbury. Hi, Craig. You're on the air. I'm delighted. Thank you. And it's fun to. Uh, I love your show, but it's it's especially fun now to say something about Trump. I uh, lived in New York City for over 40 years. I'm in Woodbury now, and I despised Trump for over 40 years. And 
there's just nothing that's honest about the man. And uh, for a while, I was very curious about why people didn't seem to understand that. And then it hit me. I think they do. I think just like someone that would hate to be sued by a sleazy lawyer, they would hire a sleazy lawyer if they wanted to sue someone else. Mm -hmm. So people have been duped into thinking that this sleazy guy, Trump, who'll do anything to get his way, will act in favor of the people who vote for him. And there's absolutely no evidence that he will do anything that isn't completely self-serving. I think there's some truth in what you say. Glenn Thrush from Politico, I heard him say he's a great reporter. And I heard him talking on somebody else's podcast recently. And I can't quote this thing exactly because I'll, I'll lose my job. But he said that the <laughs> um, he said that kind of the default assumption for a lot of Americans is that Hillary Clinton is a liar and Trump is a BS artist. And he says it's really kind of the other way around. Hillary's kind of a BS artist and Trump is a liar. And you certainly look at when any of these independent fact-checking groups, whether it's uh, factcheck.org or PolitiFact or get Glenn Kessler's operation at the Washington Post. You know, these are essentially nonpartisan operations that go in and, and, and just look at statements and verify the either truth or falseness of them. And Trump, I, I don't know if this is clear to people, because I often hear a lot of people saying, well, they both lie. They're both liars. All politicians are liars, that kind of thing. I mean, Trump, just at, in terms of volume, <laughs> just the number of things that he has said and that he says on a regular basis that are simply not true. Um, but the thing with Trump is that he's never done anything to help anyone else. And Hillary really has, even before she was into politics. And then when she entered politics, she was a wonderful senator in New York State. I was living there then. See, Craig, I think you've just touched on something that is, in fact, a flaw of her campaign. When I get in trouble when I say, look, some of the problem is she's not running a very good campaign. But I'm going to say it again anyway, that, you know, really one, one of the places her numbers went up or right after the convention, where that message that you just articulated, Craig, was spelled out about as clearly as it has been during this campaign, that this yeah. is somebody who has devoted a lot of time to public service. That's in her nature. It goes back to her earliest days as a young woman. It has continued right up to today without surcease. This is who she is. This is the thing that really drives her, is helping other people uh, get things that, that they're not currently getting, helping people who are parts of underserved populations. She's always done it. It's a great message for her. She hardly ever gets it across, you know, and, and she spends, I think she spent way too much time fundraising, even, you know, in recent weeks, and not enough time really basically saying, here's what America would look like with, with me as president. Here are my priorities. Here are things I think I can change. I'm not suggesting, by the way, that she never said says that stuff. And I'm also not suggesting that it isn't the fault of the press for sometimes not covering that stuff. But in general, it's not a real hallmark of her campaign, the exact thing that you just described as her strength. I don't know what you think about that. I, I, uh, I agree with that. Uh, I want to make one more uh, emphasize further something about Trump. He brags that he didn't lose money during the um, bankruptcies that he sustained uh, in New Jersey with the casinos. Now here, thousands of people, possibly, I don't know how many, but directly or indirectly, a lot of people lost their jobs. And, uh, you know, and this is something with gambling, which should be some kind of a sure thing. And he brags that he didn't lose money, yet people that are likely some of the customers who did go or would have gone to the casinos are people that now think that he'll help them. When, you know, he did all he could to hold on to as much money as possible while other people were losing their jobs because of what he had done. 
All right. Well, Craig, you and I are dwelling here in the reality-based community that may be going on too long. So uh, we're running out of time because that was such a good call, but I want to get at least a couple more callers on the air. Derek from Windsor, you're on. Colin, thank you, man. Um, I want to come at this from an unbiased point of view, meaning that people seem to forget where the country was when Obama took over. I think that's very much underplayed even throughout this election cycle. And, uh, I mean, I was in a panic in 2008, as, as, as many other Americans. And in spite of the obstructions that he faces, he managed to bring the country to where it is today. You know the numbers, Colin. You're oh, in the media. I absolutely do, Derek. And, and I want to get some other calls here. Although, I, th- I mean, I think we have to be fair and say, look, George W. Bush, who you could argue got the country, drove the country into a ditch uh, uh, circa 2008, isn't running this time. And Barack Obama isn't running this time. These two people, they have to run on their merits. You can make some generalized arguments about what happens when Democrats are elected versus when Republicans are elected. But you know, neither one of them is on the ballot this time. It's, you know, well, we know who it is. Uh, here's Bob and Willimantic. Hi, Bob. Hi, Colin. Thanks for taking my call. Just a, a quick comment. Uh, it occurred to me this morning that it seems that a lot of the railing against Hillary occurs because people believe that they can actually influence her in some way, according to whatever their agenda might be. Whereas I think people just take the assumption that Trump is, you know, intransigent. He's going to be who he's going to be. And I'm not sure about a lot of the whatever criticism that's put toward Hillary doesn't have so much to do with whether she's telling the truth or not. It's just that she's demonstrated for a long time now that she'll listen to which way the wind blows. And that's the sign of think of a, of a responsible leader. So anyways, I thought I'd throw that out. All right. Thanks for that call, Bob. Um, We're almost out of time here. I would just quickly say, though, I think the other thing that the other reason people rail at Hillary, uh, assuming that they do, in the way that you're talking about, I think if I understand what you're saying, is that they see that she is right now. I mean, if, in fact, you find the Trump candidacy to be a very disturbing prospect and a Trump presidency to be something resembling a civic emergency, then she's carrying everybody's hopes and dreams with her right now. It's a job she asked for. She wanted to be the Democratic nominee. She's got to do a great job right now. She's got to win the election. And so people get frustrated when they see her do things that aren't in her best interest or that feed in to underlying negative narratives about her. So, I mean, that's the other reason that she probably hears it from the bleachers, including people like me in the press. Anyway, thanks very much for calling in today. It's always fun when you guys do that. We'll be back tomorrow with a show about H.M. Grease Live beat Lemonade by Beyonce. That could be foreshadowing for this election year. Also, thank you for respecting my privacy during this difficult time.